We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Bob Wachter, who is professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco, where he is the Holly Smith Distinguished Professor in Science and Medicine and the Benioff Endowed Chair in Hospital Medicine. The department leads the nation in NIH grants and is generally ranked as one of the nation's best. Dr. Wachter is the author of 250 articles and six books and is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. He coined the term hospitalist in 1996 and is often considered the father of the hospitalist field, the fastest growing specialty in the history of modern medicine. He is past president of the Society of Hospital Medicine and past chair of the American Board of Internal Medicine. In the safety and quality arenas, he has written two books on the subject, including Understanding Patient Safety, the world's top-selling safety primer. In 2004, he received the John M. Eisenberg Award, the nation's top honor in patient safety. Thirteen times, Modern Healthcare Magazine has ranked him as one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the United States. He was number one on the list in 2015. His 2015 book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age, was a New York Times science bestseller. In 2016, he chaired a Blue Ribbon Commission advising England's National Health Service on its digital strategy. In 2020, his tweets on COVID-19 have been viewed over 50 million times by over 100,000 followers and have served as a trusted source of information on the clinical, public health, and policy issues surrounding the pandemic. Bob, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure, Ted. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. The UC San Francisco grand rounds on COVID-19 have been really incredibly helpful for physicians who are navigating this pandemic. And you've also been very active on Twitter, as we introduced in your bio, um, trying to educate the medical community and the public about COVID-19. I'll make sure to put links to this in the show notes. And I'm hoping to cover a variety of topics that have been featured during the UCSF Grand Rounds in your Twitter posts and in some of the articles and interviews you've published. So if it's all right, I'll jump right into the questions. Great. So as I said, you've been very active on Twitter, Bob, and published an article in UCSF Magazine about how you've used social media to advance the public's understanding of COVID-19 during this pandemic. Can you tell us about the impetus for this and, and how you've approached these efforts? Well, I've been on Twitter for about 10 years. And uh, in mid-March, as we were all waiting to get crushed in California, uh, I found myself taking in a huge amount of information about, about COVID and trying to understand it and digest it. And uh, I didn't have much of an outlet for it. It was interesting because UCSF had gone to a form of healthcare martial law where all decisions were being made basically by a command center. And even though I run a very large department, I found that I didn't have much to do. And so one night I said, well, I'm just going to go and tweet what's going on and be pretty open about the numbers. Uh, UCSF had decided 
to be pretty transparent. And uh, so I just discussed what the numbers were at UCSF and what I was seeing and what I was feeling. And uh, lo and behold, a ton of people uh, read it and liked it and said, do more. And I started doing it every, every night. You know, it struck me in mid-March that uh, you know, none of us knew anything about this. It was all a brand new, a brand new virus. So uh, uh, it's been very gratifying. I think I had 20,000 Twitter followers when I started and I'm up to about 110,000 now. So clearly there's been a need for, uh, for people who uh, are seen as trusted sources. It's been quite gratifying. Yes, absolutely. There's an incredible need. And I, I think that growth in, in your Twitter followers is really a testament to the quality of the information you're putting out and the credibility of that information. And Thank it's you. interesting that you, you tell that story. There, there's a parallel with this podcast as it started somewhere around the same time in early to mid-March when I identified a need about all, you know, the lack of information that was out there for the public, as well as the misinformation. And I thought, we can use this platform to bring on people who have a credible voice and are trusted experts and talk about what's really going on. Um, and so I'm really grateful that you're here joining this podcast and helping to further um, push out these messages. So during UCSF Grand Rounds, Bob, there was a discussion about UCSF data from March to June that showed the hospital length of stay and percentage of patients in the ICU had decreased and that this was not explained by younger patients being infected, which is often what we're hearing is, oh, it's, it's younger people getting sick now and that's why disease doesn't look so bad. Could you tell us more about the data from UC San Francisco and, and whether your thoughts are that this is related to wearing masks a better understanding of how to care for patients with COVID in the hospital or, or, or something else that's driving what we're seeing? Well, the data from UCSF has been interesting. You know, in, in the early days in March, the uh, mortality of patients who were sick enough to go to the ICU that was being reported nationally in the U.S. and from out of Italy was uh, 40 or 50 percent. And we have never seen that. We've, our mortality numbers have been more like 20% for patients, even patients on ventilators. Uh, but that means that patients end up staying a long time. So we've had a pretty long length of stay for the ICU patients. In terms of uh, the overall experience we've had at UCSF Medical Center, we were running 10 to 15 patients in the hospital through most of March and April. And then we've had a little bit of a surge now. We're up to about 30. But a couple of weeks ago, I brought on, <clears throat> excuse me, I brought on colleagues from Miami and Houston and Atlanta. And, you know, we, even though we call it a surge in California, it's really kind of minor compared to what they're seeing in some of the places that are truly experiencing surges. You know, we sent a bunch of our physicians uh, and nurses, volunteers to New York City in the height of things in, in April. And they were coming back and saying, you know, it's just night and day when you have a hospital that has 300 COVID patients or 400 COVID patients in a 600-bed hospital when you have 150 patients in the ICU, uh, it's, it's night and day. So we've never really been overwhelmed by, uh, by COVID. We are, like everybody else, seeing some, some younger patients now, as I think older patients are being more careful and younger patients, younger people are being a little less careful. And those patients um, generally have a somewhat better outcome than, uh, than the older patients that we tended to see in the beginning. You wrote a great opinion piece about how and when life might start to return to normal um, in, in the midst of this pandemic. Can you give our listeners a, an overview of your ideas that you outlined in that article? Yeah, I, I, I was kind of speculating on, on when things might return to normal, knowing that 
even if we have a vaccine, it probably won't be 100% effective and probably 100% of people won't have access to it in the beginning. And even if they did, 100% of people will not take it. Uh, and we have some medicines that we know already work, and there are certainly more uh, being studied. And so I began musing about how low a, a, a mortality and morbidity we would have to have before we would believe life had returned to normal. And it struck me that we have um, a metric for that, and it's called the flu. Uh, you know, we tolerate, I mean, we don't like it, obviously, and if we could make something, make it get better, we would. But as a society for the last, you know, many decades, we've tolerated a U.S. mortality uh, of around 30 to 50,000 people a year die of the flu. And obviously, we're trying to uh, get better medicines for it, and we try to vaccinate people, but the vaccine isn't perfect. And, um, and with that mortality rate, we go about our lives. We don't wear masks. We don't clean our hands probably as much as we should. And so that strikes me as a, uh, there's something in behavioral sciences literature called a revealed preference. You can ask people kind of what they think, but you, sometimes you can tell what they think by what they do. So with that, I said, all right, what would it take to get the mortality, morbidity of COVID down to flu-like levels? And it's probably about five to 10, 10 times higher than that now. Well, let's say it's five. So you need to decrease the, the mortality, morbidity of COVID by about five-fold to get us down to flu level. And I, I guess I was speculating on what that would take. It would take a vaccine of most of the high-risk people that most people uh, took. It, and probably also would take one or two additional medications that were at least as effective as the ones we have so far. So as effective as remdesivir and dexamethasone. And if we had all that, you can imagine a world where the mortality rate of COVID, rather than what it currently is, is probably somewhere around 0.7%, was lowered to something like 0.1 or 0.2%, which is similar to the flu. And uh, you know, it all remains to be seen. But the point I wanted to make was we probably don't need to have this disease completely eradicated before uh, its toll was low enough that we would be able to return to something resembling normal. Right. And that's really um, interesting speculation to think about it that way, because, uh, you know, it's becoming pretty clear that eradication is going to be very challenging. And this virus is very likely to be with us for the foreseeable future. And we're just going to have to manage within that. So hopefully we can get there. Bob, you did a podcast interview about the return of sports that was really interesting. And we're now seeing Major League Baseball and the NBA getting started and the NFL and college football preparing for that. I'm sure we could do an entire 30-minute interview just on this topic. But can you tell us your thoughts about sports getting started again and what you think might happen and what needs to be done? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an easier problem than the schools. I find the schools probably the hardest problem of all. You know, I guess my feeling about sports is that people want them. There's a huge market demand uh, for them. We know that by looking at the number of people that watch uh, that watch sports. Uh, you have young, healthy adults playing, although there are other people like coaches and managers around. But most of the people on the field are young, healthy adults, and so it's it it does seem to me that if the players are willing to put themselves at a small amount of risk, if there's aggressive testing with very rapid turnaround times, uh, and everybody behaves well, we should be able to, uh, and, and there are no crowds in the, in, in, in the uh, you know, in the stands, 
we should be able to uh, create an environment where it's safe enough. And safe enough means that probably nobody dies and relatively few people get very sick. Now, it's an open question whether that's going to work out. And as we've seen with the Marlins and and the Cardinals, uh, we're already having some speed bumps. And the question is whether the early speed bumps, these outbreaks that we're seeing, are warning shots that the players and the other folks in the league will take seriously enough that they will improve their behavior. Uh, You know, I saw interviews today with, uh, I guess, with Derek Jeter, one of the, the GMs. Uh, who said, you know, our people have not been acting perfectly. And these are young, these are young folks who are, you know, not being uh, forced to, to, uh, uh, to be in complete seclusion. So my hope is that the combination of them wanting to put on, uh, you know, sports for their fans and what they earn will be sufficient that seeing what's happened with the Marlins and what's happened with the Cardinals will be enough to get them to engage in, in, in a little bit more appropriate behavior, wearing masks, uh, achieving social distancing. I really don't believe, when you look at what happens on a baseball field, I think it's highly unlikely that any of these these infections have happened on the field. I think these are happening in the clubhouse, they're happening in parties and other things these guys are going to. And I'm hoping this is a wake-up call and if they uh, go back to pretty good behavior and they just have to do it for three months, we'll be able to have a baseball season. Obviously, it seems safer to do the bubble strategy that uh, that basketball is choosing, although it's interesting when they chose the places to have their bubbles, they were among the places that were the safest in the country, and they're all now places that have gotten creamed in the last couple of months. So it remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, my, my sport and the one I watch most avidly is golf, and that seems super safe, and I've been having a good time watching that. Yes, golf is probably among the safest to, to return to. But I, I think, as you say, the human behavior piece is the one that's going to be the hardest to manage as sports come back online. And the, the Florida Marlins piece certainly pointed that out. And it will also be interesting to see going from baseball, which is you know fairly low contact sport, to basketball, which is in a bubble, but more contact, and then yeah. into football, which doesn't sound like there will be a bubble or, or not much of one. And a lot of contact, what just happens as we see that roll out will be, um, it'll be telling about where we're headed over the next year. Yeah, a lot of it just depends on the testing. I mean, if, they, if they really do get almost daily testing so that you're reasonably sure that nobody out in the field is, is infected at least that day, uh, then it, you know, it could be safe. But as you say, you know, the, the key is the, um, they are contacting each other all the time. If somebody has it, it seems unlikely they're not going to spread it in the contact sports. Baseball is, seems safer. Right. So, Bob, on a related note to the, the idea of life returning to normal, how, how do you see this COVID pandemic changing medicine for the future? Well, I think it's, it, there's a, um, one of the things it's doing is pointing out the, the importance and the immorality of, of healthcare disparities. And that was already getting a moderate amount of attention prior to this, but I think the, the numbers on COVID and the, uh, and the coincidence with the, with the George Floyd murder uh, will lead to much more attention to healthcare disparities than, than previously. So the way that your system and my system has gotten measured in terms of mortality rates and patient safety events and patient satisfaction, I'm quite confident there will be equally robust and, and uh, measures that, ever, that are paid attention to by accreditors and by uh, other groups that maybe influence payment rates uh, around disparities that didn't exist before. I think that, that will be a healthy trend. Uh, clearly, the big one is telemedicine, and um, uh, I think telemedicine will have a profound impact on 
on healthcare, and you know, to some extent, just changing the nature of a visit, but to more, uh, to a greater extent, enabling uh, a whole um, a different kind of care. With you know, if telemedicine just simply is a visit replacement, I don't think it's transformational. But if it really becomes an enabler for uh, the way we are going to measure patients' data and how they're doing and try to influence their behavior and educate them, all happens at arm's length and all happens through virtual connections. That goes well beyond a 15 or 20-minute visit every three months for hypertension. That is, you know, we're measuring your blood pressure three times a day through a digital cuff and we're measuring your weight when you step on a digital scale and so on and so forth. I think, you know, Kaiser's a little bit ahead of the game in trying to figure out how you actually take all that data and manage it, but it's really a hard problem. And I think telemedicine kind of breaks the sound barrier from uh, a world in which most of healthcare is delivered when patients come into our orbit. And not only do we meet with them and talk to them and, and examine them, but that's where we measure things. That's where we measure their weight and their blood pressure and their glucose. I think now that barrier is broken and we will now be measuring almost everything nearly continuously or semi-continuously. And we just have to figure out how to organize that. You know, so you know as well as I do, if you just take that, all those data streams and give it as a straight shot to the primary care doc, I think most primary care docs will quit, uh, <laughs> will retire that afternoon by five o'clock. So we have to figure out some new way of creating almost air traffic control for all these new data streams. Yes, it absolutely would be overwhelming if we don't find a way to manage it and incorporate predictive analytics and AI into it to, to really help manage that flow of data. Bob, I'm glad you bring up this idea of disparities that we're seeing during this pandemic. And we've had several discussions about it on this, on this podcast. But can you tell us about what you are seeing and your thoughts about how we might begin to address healthcare disparities? Well, I mean, what we're seeing is is remarkable differences in in rates of COVID and in outcomes of COVID in uh, in in different racial and ethnic communities that some to some extent track along socio socioeconomic lines, but not not completely. Uh, San Francisco is actually quite telling, uh, in part because we have been the city that's had the least COVID burden of the top twenty cities in the United States. And so you can go around San Francisco and see extraordinarily low rates of COVID, except in uh, the Mission District, which is a predominantly uh, a Latino neighborhood, where studies that we've done at UCSF show that the rates of, uh, of uh, positive PCRs and positive antibodies are you know, many, many, many fold higher uh, than they are in you know, neighborhoods that are a you know, 10 minute walk away. And then outcomes are equally uh, worse. So it's the patients in underrepresented groups and minority groups are more likely to get infected and more likely to have uh, bad outcomes. We've seen that in the Navajo Nation. A number of my colleagues spent time taking care of patients there, and the rates have been extraordinarily high. Uh, you know, some of it is uh, is pre-existing illnesses. Some of it is living conditions and working conditions, and that. You know, if you work in a store or you work as a caregiver in a nursing home, you can't do what I've done for most of the last four months, which is do most of my work from home on Zoom. And, and then there are issues around access to care and, you know, that have to do with health insurance and, and, other, and other barriers that exist even when you adjust for health care insurance. So some of it are things within the domain of health care and things that we have to understand and improve the way we communicate with 
uh, with different populations, the way we provide care and make uh, provide access to care. Some of these are much broader societal problems about you know massive inequities and in, in income distribution that simply have to be addressed. And I think COVID just shines a light on uh, on the disparities that you know that that are ex- exist in everything, exist in educational, the educational system, the criminal justice system, and and others. So I hope we'll take advantage of the limelight that COVID is shining and the resources that I think are going to be thrown at COVID and at public health more generally to address some of these issues. Yes, COVID has absolutely shined lights on, on flaws in, our, in many different types of systems in our society and, and disparities at, at multiple levels. I, I would like to actually ask some questions about San Francisco because you talked about how outside of the Mission District you know, despite San Francisco being a, a very populated city, densely packed, the, the cases have not been particularly high for, for a city of that size and that population compared with some other cities that have been hit really hard. I understand that contact tracing in San Francisco has even incorporated librarians, uh, among others, and has been really successful compared with other cities. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, San Francisco, I, I, I analyzed this the other day on, on Twitter that I looked at the 20 most populous cities in the United States. San Francisco is number 16. And um, we are, we're about even with Seattle and, and San Jose for the lowest case rate per population. But when you look at the death rate, so which has to do with both your case rate and then how patients do if they get sick. It is the lowest by about threefold. So we've had five or six deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, the next best uh, city is about 15 deaths per 100,000 people. And when you look at cities like New York is in the 200s, um, many other large cities, uh, Houston, Dallas, uh, you know, are in the 50 to 70 range. So tenfold higher, 20-fold higher. Um, you know, massively higher. And, and so when people try to figure out why that is, I think the first instinct was, well, San Francisco is less dense. It turns out San Francisco is, is the second most dense city in the country after New York, which I don't think anybody understood, but, uh, but, but is true. So in the early days, I think this was um, uh, a combination of things. Uh, I think their political leaders acted well and quickly. I think our corporate leaders acted well and quickly. The first, you know, companies that told people to stay home were the tech companies in the Bay Area, uh, and they did that in late February and early March. The the political leaders sent everybody home in mid March, a week or so before anybody else did. I think very importantly, our people have largely gotten it, and I think that partly has to do with the politics of San Francisco. It has to do with the fact that San Francisco is a city that lives on tech, which means it lives on data and. Uh, and I, you know, you don't hear a lot about uh, it being a hoax, or it's like the flu, or or not a whole. There's not a large libertarian thread of you know, who are you to make me wear a mask? I think people generally accepted the guidance and accepted the science and did the right thing. Uh, but in the early days, I think we also just got lucky. You know, we could have easily had a big super spreader event before there was any testing, and so we got very lucky. We had an incredibly benign March through uh, May, and then like everybody else, we've let our guard down a little bit. But that is, you know, rather than 30 cases, uh, you know, 30 patients in San Francisco hospitals uh, a day, now we're up to 100. It's, that's in all the hospitals in San Francisco. Still remarkably low, well within our capacity to, uh, to manage it. And the contact tracing thing is interesting. Not only do we have a world-class public health department, 
uh, that and and the state of California uh, asked UCSF and UCLA to train uh, an army of contact tracers. So they actually trained mostly librarians who were out of work and are very good at detail oriented work. Uh, but is it's one thing to have contact tracing and train people. You also can't be overwhelmed. You know, if you're having New York style or 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 Houston or or Phoenix style surges, you just I don't care how many contact tracers you you have. You just can't keep up with it. So San Francisco has both had contact tracing capacity and also the kinds of numbers where we've done what you're supposed to do, which is keep the numbers down. When you have a case, find the case, talk to the person, find the contacts, talk to them, get them tested, sequ- you know, uh, quarantine those people. We've been able to do that sort of classic public health strategy better than any other place in the country. And I think the combination of all of it has kept us, uh, kept the death rates down. We're up to 61 deaths in San Francisco since this has started. You know, New York is 25,000, Los Angeles is in the thousands now. And I calculated of the other 19 of the 20 most populous cities in the country, if they had mirrored our death rate, that would have been about 40,000 fewer deaths. Mm. So a lot of lives have been saved. Right. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Um, so, so speaking about what else, what's been done right, I understand that the public and private systems in San Francisco have, been, have done a really good job of sharing resources. Can you tell us about what is going on there and why that public-private partnership's been so effective? Well, one thing is that that the the public health system, the San Francisco Department of Public Health, has a and I'll I'll I'll, I'll uh, toot the horn of UCSF a little bit here has a long-standing and very collaborative relationship with UCSF that goes back really to the AIDS epidemic, and uh, you know where most of the leaders in the Department of Public Health trained at UCSF, the Health Commissioner uh, Grant Colfax trained with us, Thomas Aragon, who's the person in charge of decisions about what's open and closed, trained with us as well. Uh, and so it's a very been a very strong collaborative relationship. The main hospital and set of clinics in the San Francisco Department of Public Health is at Zuckerberg San Francisco General, where we are the doctors and we rerun the training program. So it's made easier than a city like New York, where there are a ton of public hospitals. Many of them don't have uh, strong affiliations with uh, with other private sector hospitals. So San Francisco, not quite unique, but but it's been a very nice, warm relationship forever. And that meant that when you know once UCSF had enough PPE, once UCSF had enough testing, it was easy and instinctive for us to turn to our colleagues at the county, uh, who after all, after all our our faculty and our trainees, and say, "Do you need some?" So we began doing a whole lot of the testing. And the uh, and supplying PPE uh, to uh, to the Department of Public Health. Department of Public Health is really well run. Uh, was not afraid to make hard decisions. You know, very courageous. I mean, if you think about in mid March, it's easy to look back now now and say, of course, you know, the DPH should have told everybody to stay home. But it was a week or two before anybody else did. And when the DPH did that and the mayor did that, it would have been very easy to say, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin the economy. And what if things had not taken it off? You know, they would have looked terrible. So it was a bold thing to do. Um, and so I'm actually quite proud of that relationship. And I think it has helped uh, help the city combat the disease all the way along. But I think, you know, importantly, when they say stay home or when they say wear masks, the data show that people do it. And that has to do with the leadership. It also has to do with the, the people. I think, you know, the people in San Francisco are I think they get it and they're willing to do the right thing. 
Yes. And you mentioned earlier that that calculation of 40,000 lives saved, even just thinking about that decision of shutting things down one to two weeks earlier, probably had a very, you know, you could probably go back and calculate how many, you know, lives were affected just by that early decision to, to do that in what could have been a really controversial decision, right? Yeah, of course. And, you know, people don't understand, you know, how could it be a week or 10 days make that kind of difference? But that's what exponential spread is. It's, you know, one, one, one infects three, infects nine, infects 27. Before you know it, you're up to a few thousand. Yep. And it happens very rapidly. Bob, are, are there any other things that you've seen that San Francisco has done right in, in trying to manage this pandemic other than what I've asked you about? I think there's been radical transparency from the very beginning. I think everybody's caught on uh, to the importance of that. But uh, very early in the epidemic, San Francisco was very open about its numbers. UCSF the same. I, you know, when I started tweeting, nobody actually told me I could do this. But I, you know, we were talking about how many patients we had in the hospital, and I just decided to tweet it, and nobody told me not to. It's you know, I guess part of the benefit of having been there forever and written a few books about things like, you know, uh, problems that we've had with patient safety and digital, and it usually turns out okay. And I think there's a culture um, of, you know, if you're not open about these things, people suspect you're hiding something. And if you are, uh, you know, it always, people worry about it. And the people that do risk management for a living are often, you know, a little trepidatious about this. But for this one, it was, it became very clear that uh, if, you know, if you leave an information vacuum, as you know from doing the podcast, you leave an information vacuum, it will be fear, it will be filled with rumor and, um, and, and wrong information and conspiracy theories and just existential dread. I mean, people just are, you know, so worried about how bad this is that even when you tell them it's bad, and here are the numbers, that's actually far more reassuring than lying to them or trying to play hide the ball. Yes. Uh, having an information vacuum is, is seldom the, the, the right answer. Bob, so far, we've been talking about city-level response. Uh, I'd like to ask for your opinion about our country's federal response to the pandemic, including what was done well, what could have been done better, and what we can learn for the future, because this is not the only pandemic that is ever going to happen in the history of this world. Well, of course, you know, as soon as you begin talking about this, people sort of accuse you of partisanship. And we've, we're sort of living in this world where everybody seems to, you're either shirts or skins. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm completely neutral, but I, I have tried to be as neutral as I can be about what's been happening. I think the federal response has been pathetic. I, you know, I can easily imagine, imagine a world where the, uh, the federal government, starting from the top, uh, took this seriously from the very beginning, recognized that, yes, there needs to be some local autonomy and authority because it's going to have a different shape in different places, but there have to be certain things that are done nationally in terms of guidance, in terms of resources, whether it's testing or PPE. That requires a, a huge uh, concerted federal effort, uh, some of which is going to be doing the things themselves and some of which is going to be through regulations or funding or cheerleading. And I think at every level I can think of, uh, it's gone wrong. It's, uh, it's been uh, the fact that masks became a political issue, the fact that testing has been uh, you know, woefully inadequate and, and became another political issue, the fact that the CDC was essentially the, their microphone was taken away and very good people who prepared their entire career for things like this. 
have basically not been allowed to speak. And when they've been allowed to speak, they have to tell a certain story that is not scientifically accurate. The fact that the president is touting certain medications or techniques that have been are dangerous or have been unproven. Uh, you know, the whole thing has been disastrous. The only thing that I think has gone well, at least so far, has been vaccines. You know, there's room for it to be screwed up too, but at least so far, the federal decisions to create a vaccine promotion program to put a tremendous amount of resources into it. And there have been some arguments about has that been a little politicized and was that the process of choosing winners and losers? Uh, you know, was it transparent enough? And is there a little cronyism? Maybe. But I, you know, when I look at the number of companies that have moved along briskly and far faster than they would have if it were not for the federal response, the federal response has done a few things. The big one is de-risking it. So, you know, part of the reason that it typically takes five or 10 or 15 years to come up with a vaccine is it's a hugely challenging problem and most times you're going to fail. And so pharma companies are very reluctant to get in the business and in the first hint of failure, they're going to pull the plug. And what the feds did here was provide enough money to the most promising companies that it really took away the risk of doing it. And therefore, they plowed full steam ahead, knowing that there was some upside and very little downside. So I think that was really smart because, you know, even if it ends up that we, quote, wasted $5 billion, you think about the trillions of dollars that we're spending on the economy and the, and the cost in, ter in terms of lives. So that was smart. I think it's also been smart to basically anticipate that there will be one or two or five effective vaccines that come out at the end of this year, or the beginning of next year. And my analogy is a relay race. So you have to have the next runner already running down the track, anticipating the handoff of the baton. So there's been a lot of money put into gearing up for the manufacturing and distribution process. Otherwise, if you didn't do that, you'd get an effective vaccine in February and you wouldn't get it out to people till November and, it, you know, and you would lose hundreds of thousands of lives and trillions of dollars. So I, I have very little to argue with the vaccine response so far. There's a lot of room to go before the end. And I worry that we'll, we'll blow that one too later. But at least for now, that part I think has gone quite well. That's, that's an outstanding segue into what I think I, I want to make my last question for you. And that is about prospects about a COVID vaccine. And um, I get this question from patients and family and friends about when, when do you think we can actually reliably expect that one will be out and, and available for at least you know, a reasonable amount of a mass market? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't say I know any more than what I hear from colleagues who study this for a living and from studying, you know, from, from listening to a whole lot of conversations about this. It does appear that we're now five months into this, six months into this, that all of the benchmarks that we needed to have hit, uh, we've hit in order to be on a path to having an effective vaccine out in, let's say, a year from when we started. So if you remember, you know, Fauci said in February or March, you know, I think we will have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. That, of course, was, would make it fast, the fastest vaccine developed and distributed in history. Prior to that, the fastest one was five years. But when you look at what, what needed to happen in the first five months to be on a path to that statement being accurate, basically was we had to be able to have a variety of ways of, of approaching this, and that has happened. We had to be able to demonstrate that the virus led to antibodies and that the antibodies appear to be effective in preventing illness. And I think although nobody, everybody says we're not sure that that's true, 
you know, if you think about the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that have had COVID and, and uh, test positive, PCR positive in March, uh, if, if antibodies did not, antibodies and or T cells, if, if immunity didn't work, you would be seeing hundreds and hundreds of people back with their second episode now. And maybe there's one documented case, but even that is debatable. So there are either zero or less than the number of fingers on your hands documented cases of anybody who got a second recurring COVID infection, which basically says immunity works. So immunity works. We know that we're developing vaccines that appear to uh, result in antibodies and in a T-cell response. Uh, We have injected those vaccines into or, or blown it into the noses of uh, both uh, uh, rodents and, uh, and monkeys. And in both cases, they appear to not get infected when you then give them a big dose of the COVID virus. So all those things are pretty terrific. And as I said, I think the feds have done the right thing in sort of turbocharging the process. There's still a ton of stuff that can go wrong. We could find a bad, rare side effect that we didn't see in the first 50 or 100 patients, but you see when you're studying a couple thousand uh, we could see that, yes, you develop immunity, but it only lasts six months. Uh, you know, those are all possible. But uh, I think it's likelier than not that we will have one or more effective vaccines approved by early 2021 and being distributed to high-risk populations uh, by summer, you know, by June, July 2021. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a perfectly realistic timeline right now. That's great. And I, I think ending on that note ends with having some real hope for the, the short-term future in, in, ter- in terms of um, starting to get ahead of this whole process. Bob, I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and our listeners for this discussion. It's been incredibly insightful. You're, you're very knowledgeable about this topic and discuss it in a way that, that's very easily digestible. So I, I thank you for your time in, in joining us to help spread credible information. My pleasure, Ted. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.